Welcome to another episode of the Flushing Transit Authority. We are a Mets podcast. I'm Jay Bushman. I'm a Mets fan, and I'm 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 troubled uh, about the Mets. Uh, I know that's not a unique feeling, but that's uh, that's how I feel. Uh, how do you feel about the Mets? Well, I'm Will Stegman. Um, I have to say, I'm happy to be here to talk to the Mets with you. I am very disappointed with the Mets. <laughs> Let me tell you. If I were the Mets' mother, I would be saying, wait till your father gets home, Mets, <laughs> because I, I've, I've had it up to here with these I'm Mets. Not, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. That's exactly it. Yes, except I, I'd go so far as to say is you're a little angry. You know, I raised these Mets better than this. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, we're going to get into that, but before we do, um, we uh, need to open the show with uh, an apology. Uh, in a previous episode... We said that at the Clash's famous concert at Shea Stadium in 1982, the band was joined on stage by Mets icon Rusty Staub, uh, who played keyboard on the songs Ghetto Defendant and Sean Flynn. Uh, turns out we were mistaken, and Rusty Staub did not play the keyboards for the Clash. That was actually Mets utility outfielder Gary Rasich. Um, we apologize to Mr. Rasich, Mr. Staub, uh, and the entire Clash. Uh, and speaking of the Clash... Um, you, Will, have been uh, asking a, a version of this question a lot lately, and that question is, should I stay or should I go? You know what? That's a good question. Um, I've been asking myself that right now. And when it comes to the Mets, what do we do? Well, fortunately or unfortunately for us, we're fans. There's nothing we can do. We, we don't play the games. We don't sign the contracts. We don't execute the trades. All we can do is bear witness. Well, as painful as that is sometimes. But is it is it too late to maybe uh, take a look and see what the Astros are doing? Oh, or, um, you know, there's a lot of other teams in this league. There are, but there if there's one thing that's worse than constant ignominious defeat, it's a bandwagon. Yes, you are correct. Yes. I would rather stick with the Mets through what looks like is going to be a middling season then, you know, start rooting for the Dodgers. And, you know, you just used a really important word that I want to I go back to, and that's middling. Because we have been talking like this is a crisis. Like this is one of the worst things ever to happen in this franchise's history. This is a middling season. This has been a mediocre season. This has been a disappointing season. This is not a tragedy. They're not... Zero and 162 on the year. Exactly. This is not this is not a plane crash of the season. We haven't crashed the Mets in the Andes where they're forced to <laughs> you know to to cannibalize one another. Another reason to miss Bartolo. Let me tell you. Yeah, you can pretty keep much. The whole roster going. Pretty much. So we are we are square in the bargaining stage of grief. Here is what it sounds like. We are we are making deals with ourselves about how. This isn't all that bad, but it's been a it's been a rough couple of weeks since the last episode. There have been a lot of heartbreaking losses. Even the victories feel like they've come after um, trouble. The the yesterday's game, uh, Zach Wheeler pitched a wonderful game, and then normally reliable Jerry Blevins uh, gives up a tying home run. And even though they came back and won the game, it, it still feels like a gut punch. Well, that's the problem. You know, Jerry Blevins has somehow appeared in 200 games this season. You know, his look, his his close rate is great. Normally, he gets in, does his job. Yeah. And again, I got to tell you, I, I love Jerry Blevins. 
I'm not a big fan of following, you know, players on Twitter because I think a lot of the stuff that they say is um, sanitized and you don't really get a true um, sense of, of who they are with the exception of Noah Syndergaard. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I was following Jerry Blevins on Twitter because he and his wife were making jokes back and forth. Like, I root for Jerry Blevins. I never want to see Jerry Blevins fail. You know, he's just, he gets up there every day and he plays. But when you put a guy out there day after day, some point this is going to happen yeah and you know as Mets fans we're suffering from sort of a crisis of of reality not meeting our expectations we know that the Mets have never made the postseason three years in a row we had a magical 2015 season yeah. we had a great second half in 2016 and we expected oh this is the year they're going to put the first half and the second half together pitchers are going to be great we're going to have enough offense everything's going to be terrific that hasn't happened. And if, you know, if we were doing this podcast four years ago, we would feel a lot better because we're like, hey, they're competitive. They're in games. They're winning a couple. They're only seven games under 500. This has been my refrain the whole season. That, that Is this what we wanted? No. Is this disappointing? Yes. Is this a tragedy? Is this embarrassing? Only if you live in a world in which New York tabloid headlines are your barometer for how you go throughout your day. Right. I think what helps my sanity a great deal is the fact that I no longer live in the New York metropolitan area. That helps. So I no longer listen to WFAN on a regular basis. That's, uh, that's, that's probably good for everyone's uh, sanity, really. Uh, I was never uh, really much of a huge uh, FAN listener outside of listening to the games. And... Uh, Many years ago, when I was still living in New York, uh, and I worked at a, a job where the guy who was the, the manager put WFA on in the office. So that was my first time really listening to it all day, every day. And it was, it was pretty toxic at times. Yes. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a world that I'm sort of glad that I don't live in anymore. I am much happier to get my, you know, let's argue about uh, things incessantly from Tumblr, um, where the subject matter is usually movies and TV shows and comic books and gifts. And that, to me, feels kinder and gentler, even when that gets pretty brutal. You know, your FAN, list, sort of the listening being forced on you, reminds me of something that my dad used to do. Um, my father was a guy who could not stand silence. He had a radio with FAN on in the kitchen. So if you were in the, that part of the house, you heard the radio. He had another radio in the garage that had WFAN on at all times. There's one place in the house where you think you could get away, the bathroom. Not at my dad's house. My dad had FAN hooked up so that when you flipped the light switch on, FAN would come on. Wow. At really loud volumes, too. That's an engineering feat. So it was often like, you just want to get away from for a minute. I just want to go use the bathroom. I just want a moment's peace. And you flip on the bathroom light because it's dark, and you got to hear Joe Beningo. Oh, that's, that's, wow. That it was that inescapable. A, talk about night terror. Yeah. Wow. It was okay when it was Steve Summers, but when Joe Beningo took the overnights, yeah, and you're at my dad's one. house, and you flip the you flip the light on at midnight. So, so that's actually a really good segue to the next question, um, which is, 
it's still only June, but it is starting to get late early. Mm -hmm. And my question is, how late is too late? At what point do we just have to say, nope, not this year? The All-Star break. If the Mets are seven games under 500 of the All-Star break, if they're under 500 of the All-Star break, it's not going to happen. Basically, they have a month to right the ship here. Um, if there's any hope that they're going to be competitive the rest of the year. Have you, um, have you ever heard of the term Friedman units? No. Friedman units is a, is a joke um, uh, at the expense of uh, New York Times pundit Thomas Friedman, who was notorious during the, uh, during the Iraq War for continually writing these, um, these pieces saying, well, we just need to give it another six months. And then yeah. you know, six months would go by, and then it would be like, well, we just have to give it another six months. I kind of feel like we've been in this Friedman unit phase uh, on this podcast with the Mets that like each next two week period is going to be the period in which it determines what happens for the rest of the season. And I think it's our it's our schedule. If we did these more often, we <laughs> wouldn't have that. Because you know, Maybe. there are some great podcasts out there. Um and I listen to a number of them and I try very hard to not be influenced by their thinking. <laughs> um but if we did this weekly, I think um, there would be a faster turnaround. You know, you know, we know each other. We like to take the more sort of long view approach, right. so we do it less frequently and yeah. talk about more stuff. But yeah, you're right. It leads to a, well, the next two weeks is when they're going to write the ship. Right. So think about it this way. What needs to happen for the Mets to write the ship? Well, that being said, I do actually think the next two weeks are really important because the next two weeks, the cavalry <laughs> is here. Seth Lugo is back. Steven Matz is back. Joanna Cespedes will probably be back uh, later this week or next week. The cavalry has arrived. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen now. I, you're, you are correct. But if it's going to happen, now is the time. Yes. The other thing that coincides with that, and I, I meant to look this up beforehand and I, and I didn't, because I don't know the ins and outs of the Super 2 qualifications, but it's Sometime right around now that they pass that period of time where if they call up a prospect, uh, their service time clock kicks in later. So we are going to see Ahmed Rosario sometime in the next two weeks. I am like 79% sure of that. So you add in Cespedes, Mats, Lugo, bring up, uh, bring up Rosario. I think we are at the end of the Jose Reyes era. He's got to be sit down got to be replaced completely by Wilmer Flores and or Ahmed Rosario sometime in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, it's not that different, hopefully, from that week in 2015 when we got Cespedes, Conforto came up, we got Kelly Johnson, Juan Uribe, David Wright came back. Like, there's going to be a lot of turnover in the next couple of weeks, and this could be the time. Of course, we could be back here in two weeks. Uh, <laughs> and nothing will have changed other than they will have you know, dug the hole just a little bit deeper, and we can have another version of this conversation. Right. Well, I'm looking at the stats here, looking at the standings, I should say. Let's take the division out of it, because they're double digits behind Washington. Um, it would take a 51 Dodgers, um, 64 Phillies level collapse for Washington to not win this division. A 2007-2008 Mets collapse. I wasn't going to say it, yeah. but yes. But yes. Um, right now, they're nine games back 
in for the second wild card spot. There were five teams ahead of them. That's a that's a hill too big to climb, in my opinion. The best thing you can hope for is they stay competitive. They maybe get within four games. If you go into September, you're four games out of the wild card. At least you're playing games that matter. At least something can happen. I don't think a team's going to crawl out of a nine-game wild card hole just for the right to play a, you know, a, yeah. an elimination road game. I would rather take the long view and start looking at 2018. And that means, like you said, Reyes, have a seat. Yeah. Bring up Rosario. Yeah. Look and see who's got a contract that's going to expire that we can get some value from. I say we as if I'm working for the team. Right. Yes. I always hate when people do that, but I do it and I shouldn't. <laughs> but that means... You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to institute a rule. You get a pass on that. Thank you. While the mic's on, I get a pass While on the While the mic's week. on, you get a pass on that. So I think it's time to look. Can you get What can you get for Jay Bruce? Jay Bruce is probably the most valuable trading ship they've got right now. You actually emailed me the other night right after Bruce hit the home run to say, trade him now. Trade him now. His value will <laughs> never be higher. Look, you know Jay Bruce is a streaky hitter like Lucas Duda. When Jay... When Jay Bruce hits two home runs in a game, if Sandy Alderson is not on the phone with GMs, right. as soon as that second ball clears the fence, he's not doing his job. Yeah. Um, I think it's time to look, what can you get for Addison Reed? What can you get for Jared Blevins? There are a lot, the Mets have a lot of players that are of value to a contending team. So you're ready to cut bait now? Yes. All right. Well, it's ready to cut bait now. That doesn't I mean... I am going to remind you of this in August after they have gone on the run and they have climbed right back in the wild card. Well, also remember that this is about the point in the 99 season where Bobby Valentine made that decree yes. where he says, hey, we got the talent to win 40 of the next 55 games, which, one, is a weird measurement, is a, is a really weird time measurement. Who breaks the, the season up into 55-game segments? I realize, you know, it rough, works out at roughly a third of the season, and they were at the 55-game mark, but you think, like, oh, we could win eight out of the next ten, is what you would yeah. say in your head. I always think in, in, in brackets of ten, Valentine's must be playing 3D chess to be able to say, <laughs> hey, we're going to win 40 out of the next 55, and then they did it. So it could happen. Right, it could. Get, it your, could. get your get your mustache and glasses and sit in the dugout and wait for it. It could happen, but it's probably not going to. You know, what I think of even more than that is a couple of years ago when the Dodgers went 42-8 and eight yeah. in a 50-game yeah. run, yeah. which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think you can count on that. So I think it's time to look at what you got for 2018. So... I don't completely disagree. I'm not ready to, to make that call yet, but if that time comes and they have to make those calls, I'm not going to be too upset about it. The thing that I am interested in looking into, and to a certain extent we can't really know, it's easy for us to talk about, well, move this player, replace this player with another player. What I would love to hear more about, or what I would love to see more about, there are some 
internal processes in the team and in the system that seem to not be working as well as they should. We've already talked ad nauseum about injuries, training, rehabilitation, communication, all that stuff. Um, I'm, but I'm really interested in looking at what are some other things that can indicate uh, behind-the-scenes patterns, behind-the-scenes uh, culture that maybe could be addressed. And, and there's one thing in particular that has been on my mind a lot. Um, and I, I did look this up before uh, before we started recording. I have a thought in my head of where I think okay. you're going with this. Off the top of your head, if I asked you how many Sunday day games the Mets have won this year, how many would you guess? I know the answer to this because I was looking at it recently. I believe at least I know that the answer for home games is zero. The answer for the whole season is zero. They have played seven Sunday day games this season, and they have lost all of them. I know they've played two. They've played three Sunday night games and won two they, of the they've three. They've played. They've played seven Sunday night games. They've played seven games on Sundays. They've won two. Those have both been night games. Yes. They have played nine day games this season. They have only won two. One was opening day, and the other was the Saturday game at Washington. But they have played seven times on Sunday during the day, and they have lost all of them. Is that a statistical fluke, or is that indicative of something happening with preparation? Well, I think that small sample size. Um, if you played those, you know, if you played those games over again, very good chance they win Possibly. six out of seven games. However, I thought this was where you were yeah. going. Um, is the the team's use of their starters and the use of the bullpen, is that basically leaving their arms exhausted the next day? And I thought it was really interesting that um, I, I heard that last week, um, and I forget where I, where I heard this, it may have been one of the broadcasters talking about a conversation with Terry Collins, calling back to, if you remember, the Mets made a big deal in spring training about how Differently, they were going to run spring training for their pitchers and not have them pitch as much. And at the time, it was promoted as a way to keep the arms fresh and to not overtax them. But what seems to have happened, and what I believe Terry was admitting, is that it meant their pitchers started the season not ready. Right. And and that's one of those things where it's easy to say, you made a mistake. Well, when they were saying this in, in, in February and March, we were all like, great, save the arms. They got it wrong. Yes. People are going to get things wrong. Teams are going to get things wrong. My question is, are there other things that are happening, other processes that are in place that maybe they can tweak, they can look at and figure out how to, uh, how to improve some of these things? I don't know that this is a Mets problem specifically. I think that baseball has overcorrected with pitch counts and how starting pitchers are watched. Um, Counterpoint, I was watching the college, um, not the College World Series, but like the, the qualifying tournament that leads to the College World Series. After tip of the hat to my friend Greg Gethard, who um, told me, oh, you should really be checking out this college tournament. Huh. Um, college baseball, which I've never gotten on board with, is super fun. Really? College baseball, super fun. And... Managers of college, you know, coaches of college baseball teams don't give a damn about pitch counts in a lot of cases. 
just get out there. Mm-hmm. Just, hey, you know what? This is win or go home. And pitch counts are largely thrown out um, because there's such a disparity in the talent level. You know, the major leagues, you know, you've got a relatively uniform you know, right. field of you know, players. Some people are better, some people are worse. But in college, there's such a difference potentially between your number one and your number two starter or your best pitcher and somebody coming out of the bullpen. And if your job is on the line, if you lose this, you're going to leave that guy in there because he's so much better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. So pitch counts are going to go out the window. Um, have at the major league level, because of the dollar investment that teams make and because of the the time investment, and the fact that, you know what, agents, everybody who works for the players has, you know, wants to keep them healthy, um, have we overcorrected? I think there's something to that argument, and, you know, I don't want to get into uh, another version of old-time baseball wisdom versus sabermetrics debate, because I think there are idiots on both sides Yep, and I'm one of of them. Um... In general, I find the idea of advanced statistics interesting because it's always interesting to look at what's happening and try and find another way of slicing the data to gain an insight into what's actually happening. That being said, and I don't want to make this sound like it's just sabermetricians that do this. This is a built-in bias of anything that uses statistics and analysis that replaces the statistics with what's actually happening Yes. In reality, there's a saying um, that's uh, there's a saying in business that goes something like "What gets measured gets managed." Yep. I have always changed that to "What gets measured what gets measured gets mismanaged," because you have the tools that seem to show you something puts that puts the onus on you to do something about it. Right. The more statistics you have, the more it seems to push you to a decision to. How do we change the change the statistic? And then you start changing what you do so the statistics look different. Um, the, the the phrase that I always love thinking about in this is actually uh, on a show I wrote uh, once. I actually named an episode after this. Uh, it's the map is not the territory. The statistics are not what really happened. And they're useful as tools to help you understand what really happened, but they should never replace what actually happened. This is why saves don't mean anything. And yet, the game has changed to maximize the statistic that actually impairs the experience on the field. Right. Um, Pete Law, who, you know, he's a long-time ESPN writer, um, fellow Long Islander like myself, um, he's got a book out called Smart Baseball mm-hmm. that I was reading recently, and he talks about the save rule a lot and how the way that managers managed to the rule rather than to the situation basically costs them game. Yeah. And you know, similarly, I think managers all across Major League Baseball manage to the pitch count. Um, manage to the radar gun. You know, what, what's his velocity now compared to what it was in the first inning? Where really all that matters is getting people out. It's funny, a, a manager, and, and I've always, I haven't really thought of this before until now, but, but you know, baseball teams are led by managers, where other sports, they're led by head coaches. I think that's a really interesting distinction, because a baseball manager is, in essence, a middle manager. And something like managing to pitch counts isn't because a, a baseball manager believes in pitch counts. 
It's that the baseball manager has a boss who is going to call him up and say, why did you throw this guy and allow him to throw 131 pitches and blow his arm out? Like, he is accountable to someone. And just like any other industry where you're a middle manager, you're going to go into your boss's office, you have to show them the statistics of what you've been doing. Your boss has those statistics and will ask you questions about it, and you have to justify your decisions. So it's not that I think that people believe in pitch counts. It's that the industry has found itself in a place where this is a metric that everyone uses, yes. and they're going to ask you about it, and you have to have an answer. And I feel, again, my, my opinion is, is that they've overcorrected Look, we're not going to go back to pitchers throwing 300 in. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah. But move away from pitch counts and set the expectation. As a starting pitcher, your job is to get 21 batters out. Yeah. 21 batters out. Yeah. Seven innings. Yeah. That's the expectation. Sometimes you're going to fall short, but that's what you're going into it trying to do. It's no longer, hey, we're going to throw a complete game. But you know, how many times this year has a Mets starter thrown a pitch in the seventh inning. Not enough. Not a lot. Yep. Not a lot. It's it's so few that when it happens, yes. we 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 email yeah, each other. I'm excited. I mean, oh my we're God. so thrilled that Zach Wheeler got like through the seventh. Yeah. And the Evans gave it up. It was so that that made it hurt even more. Right. Like so even he when did, they came back and run. won the game, it was still like, oh but you know Zach Wheeler didn't get the win. Even the wins are for pitchers are meaningless. Right. Team wins are all that matter. I will tell you though the night before, today was, this week was weird. Yeah. It's off day Monday, off, off day, day Thursday. Thursday. The Tuesday night game broke me. Yeah. The Tuesday night game just broke me. And the thing that broke me was not the fact that they gave up 10 runs, it's that they almost came back to win it. And, you know, I, I think that's one of the reasons it didn't break me, is that when they got, when they gave up 10 runs and they got so far behind, I stopped watching. I had something else to do. It was like, all right, we don't have to sit here and watch this anymore. Let's go do, you know, let's have the rest of rest of life is out there, stuff to get right. done. And then day, later yeah. on, I saw like, oh, they almost came back. Oh, wow, okay. Way to show a little moxie. So for me, it was a little, all right, maybe maybe it's not as bad as it felt, but it destroyed you. It destroyed me. Yeah. So the next night, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to watch the NBA Finals. Oh, I'm going to watch basketball. <laughs> I'm not even going to watch. Yeah. Of course, what I did was I had the game on the TV and I had the stream of the Mets game on with the sound off, just watching and, and trying to not pay attention to it because that's I felt like I was in an abusive relationship yeah. with the Mets. But I, I, you know, they won, but it was, at the same time, just a grind. It can be painful. And, you know, this is actually a, probably a good uh, segue into our sponsor uh, for this episode. Um, so let's, uh, why, don't we, uh, why don't we hear from them? Sure. Today's episode of Flushing Transit Authority is brought to you by Shook Shack. We all know that feeling. You've just suffered through another heartbreaking Mets loss. You're leaving City Field with a gnawing sense of discomfort in your belly. And you need to fill it with good food surrounded by other disgruntled, disconsolate Mets fans. You need Shook Shack. Whether it's choking down another blown lead by the bullpen with a delicious Shook burger, or washing away the taste of another starting pitcher not making it through the fourth inning with a frozen custard with all the toppings, Shook Shack is there to ease the pain. Right off the Grand Central Parkway in Queens, in screaming in existential despair distance from City Field, Shook Shack, what to stomach when you can't stomach anymore. I gotta tell you, this world needs the Shook Shack. 
The beauty of the Shook Shack is the Shook Shack is one of those one of the few restaurants whose airport location is as good as the standalone location. The JFK Shook Shack is terrific. I gotta tell you, I don't generally want to be around other people after a really bad loss, but Shook Shack is one of the exceptions. There's just something so comforting being around people who are just as miserable as you are eating food that's fantastic together. It's, it's, it's a balm for the soul, and if that's something that Mets fans have needed this season and in many seasons past, it's that. This is filling a really, really important niche. Um, I'm really hoping that they start putting some West Coast locations I would love it. out here. Um, that, that would be lovely. Shook Shank also has the underrated best French fries in the French fry game. Crinkle cut fries. You think? I will. I will. Yeah. I will brook no argument on this. <laughs> Crinkle cut fries are the best fries. And you know, I don't know if you heard this, but they recently made a big uh, announcement that they are now sourcing most of their meat from Ioannis Cespedes's ranch in Florida. Wow. Yeah. So good you know, you get you go. know, Mets outside, Mets inside. You, you know. Yeah. yeah. I could really go for a good Shook Shack burger. Yeah. Well, let's see how tonight's game goes. What we need is one of those services that will deliver anywhere in the country. Oh, man. Like a, yeah. like a dry ice, Shook Shack burgers and yeah, fries. Yeah, maybe they can get on that. That would be great. Nice. So, um, mid-June, we are coming up on the yearly event. The Mets are coming to L.A. We've yes. got four games against the Dodgers, uh, not next week, but the following week. Um, how many of those games do you think you're going to be going to? I'm probably going to get to at least two of those. But can I sidebar for a moment? Absolutely. i got to tell you... One is I say I've got to tell you too often. <laughs> I go back and listen to these after we do it because I want to. I want to hear how we sound yeah. because it, yeah, I say that phrase far too often. I have a memory to share with you. Okay. One of my favorite baseball memories is being a little kid, mm-hmm. like seven, eight years old, and having a bedtime and having my dad wake me up because the Mets were playing the Dodgers in L.A. So at like 10.30 at night, mm-hmm. my dad waking me up to come back downstairs to watch the Mets play the Dodgers. Nice. And it was, my mind was blown as a kid because, I don't, I don't know time zones from nothing, but I wake up, I'm tired, and I'm like, Dad, why, why are we getting up? He's like, I'm going to show you something. And Mets are playing. Mm-hmm. And it's still sunny out. Yeah. And they're playing in this stadium I've never seen before. And there are palm trees over the fence. And I have this childhood memory of seeing Daryl Strawberry hit one over the bullpen into the parking lot. I don't rem- I don't know if I imagined that mm. or if that really happened. I'm going to go through retro sheet. <laughs> for like early, it had to be around yeah. 83, 82, 83. But the idea of seeing Dodger Stadium um, on TV as a kid and the palm trees and the sunshine blew my mind. Nice. And to this day, you know, it's, it's I'm, I'm 42 years old. You know, to go to Dodger Stadium, sit there and look out at those same palm trees all these, all these years later, it puts me in a really special frame of mind. I have a, I have a very conflicted relationship with Dodger Stadium. Um, I mean, it is the stadium in our city, so that's it. We're going to see baseball, it's going to be there. I mean, with Exception of the odd trip down to Anaheim. Um, Very odd trips down to Anaheim. You know how we used to always say about Shea Stadium that this place may be a dump, but it's our, our dump. dump? 
don't mean to upset anyone out there, but Dodger Stadium is a dump. And it's not our dump. And every time I go, it is as close as I can get to remembering what what going to Shea was like. It's got that 60s concrete, you know, almost cookie cutter, but not quite feeling to it. Um, they've done renovations like every other year for the past 10 years to put a, you know, a new coat of paint on things. But it's really still crumbling. And, and it's just, it's not a very comfortable place to see again. This has never happened. I couldn't I couldn't disagree with you more. Alright, we've got a good disagreement. I love Dodger Stadium. I think that Dodger Stadium is the platonic ideal of what a baseball experience should be. Dodger Stadium is Shea Stadium if they took care of it and it wasn't infested with (laughs) with feral animals. And I don't mean the player. I'm not talking about Vince Coleman here. I'm talking about, you know... I just, I think, I just really love the the new generation of, you know, neo-retro stadium design that started with Camden Yards. And, like, those are some really, really great places to, to see games. Camden Yards, Safeco Field in Seattle. Um... I really like City Field. It doesn't have a lot of the the charm of Shea, but you know, give it a few decades. Yeah, um, Dodger Stadium just feels past its sell by date to me. Yeah, I think that the Dodgers organization, um, throughout numerous ownership groups, and I think they've done a great job in maintaining that stadium. Look, a new coat of paint goes a long way. Yeah, I think the food is is pretty good for ballpark food. Um, I know that some people will tell you that the Dodger Stadium crowd can be a little rough. History has is littered with cases where they have been. Um, I've never had a bad experience at Dodger Stadium, with the exception of maybe the Chase Utley game oh, that we were both at, God. sitting in different sections. I've never had a bad experience at Dodger Stadium. Um, I will, you know, it's one major difference between Dodger Stadium and other stadiums I've been to, is there is a dramatic difference in the feeling in the upper deck and in the more expensive seats. Mm, Dodger Stadium, you really get what you pay for. Yeah. More so than other parks. I once, a few years ago, had an opportunity to see a game at Dodger Stadium from those, like, mega ridiculous expensive seats on the field level right behind home plate, Mm -hmm. where you're literally actually under the field. Yes. Like, the way that it's, it's engineered. And I got to tell you, it's a terrible place to see a game from. Like, I was like, I know you're paying a lot of money and, like, all the free food is great and, like, you're really, really close to the players, but I can't see anything. Yeah, that's that's not, I mean, you know, yeah. it is for fans. If you're a fan and that's where you want to sit, beautiful. Yeah. Like, you know, there are people who do it. Um, I mean, Marlins man never actually gets a good view of any game he goes to. I prefer to sit down... Um, the uh, for, at Dodger Stadium down the first baseline because that's where the visitors' dugout is. Mm-hmm. I like to get as close to the visitors' dugout as I can, uh, close as I can afford to, and gives you a, a better view of the entire field. And you sort of get a sense of the, some of the clubhouse dynamics. Yeah. Um, game five of the 2015 um, division series, I happen to be able to you know get a great shot of. The Mets players waiting for the last out. Nice. And I was close enough where I can get them all sort of standing on the railing. I was like, 
this is why this is a great seat yeah. because you get the, you get the team dynamic. Mm -hmm. You get to see the people who you root for, but. Up in the upper deck at Dodger Stadium is a different experience. You're in there like you're in cattle cars. Very much. There are fewer food options. Dodger Stadium is definitely a place where you get what you pay for. And you know what? Now that I think about it, now that you mention that, upper deck at Dodger Stadium makes me think of upper deck at old Yankee Stadium. Mm -hmm. And that same kind of you're crammed in, the view is terrible, the angles suck. Upper deck at Shea Stadium was actually a really great way place to see a ball game from and when i started to be old enough to be able to buy tickets to games um for myself but still wasn't making enough money to buy anything other than upper deck tickets we would go for upper deck box in behind home plate yes which is a was a brilliant place to see a game upper deck box behind home plate was the secret best seat yes. in the house if you were like me, 19, 20 years old, yeah. and you got enough money to get to the game and get a single ticket and maybe a hot dog yeah. and nothing else, that was great. It's a lot now, of games from there. My dad used to tell me, and Howie Rose talks about this on the radio, is how that section used to be general admission. Oh, yeah. And it yeah. used to just be like $1.75, mm -hmm. and you just rush for your seats. Wow. Which must have been fantastic. Um, Yank the Yankee Stadium comparison is, the old Yankee Stadium comparison is definitely apt. I can tell you, though, the sitting in the back of the upper deck at Shea Stadium, you ever sit in that last row I have, up against the chain link fence? I have sat in that row, yes. That was terrifying. Yeah. I once sat also at the very end on the left field side, where it's basically you just look over it and there's the parking lot below yeah. you. Mm -hmm. That was terrifying. But that's, you know, when you're going on a school trip, and you're 10 years old, um, you take what you can get. Pretty much. Yeah. 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 You know, my first ever game, um, June, what, June, I want to say it was June 14th, 1984. I'll have to check that date. Um, but I was 10 years, I just mm -hmm. turned 10 years old. Um, that's for playing the Expos. A 19-year-old Dwight Gooden oh, wow. pitched a complete game. 2-1 loss. Wow. Um, and I, I remember every moment sitting in that <laughs> upper deck. Have you, um, have you been to the new Yankee Stadium? I have not been there yet. Neither, neither have I. I still want, at some point later in this season, especially if the rest of the season goes to, goes to hell like it seems like it will, I still want to do an episode of this show where we talk about Yankees. Just our relationship to that team Absolutely. as the bad guys, but we're gonna we're gonna especially we're gonna, with them having a pretty good season. Yeah, uh, so let's put a pin in that for now. All right. Let's um, get back so the to... Mets are coming to LA. Four games, uh, uh, Monday through Thursday, uh, in uh, two weeks. Thursday night, uh, I think I think I'm going to go to two games. Also, um, I haven't decided which ones yet. I really want to go to Thursday night uh, because Thursday night. I don't know if you know this. Thursday, Thursday night's game is Game of Thrones night. Oh. Yes. If um, only Noah Syndergaard was helping. only Noah Syndergaard were help, helping. But I, I would like to put an idea um, uh, in your head, and I, we, we're not going to commit to this, but, but, you know, let's talk about this. I think we should record the next pod at the game, whether or not we do it parking lot beforehand or maybe nearby, um, and invite uh, if there are any other uh, Mets fans in LA who are going to be at the game come on down 
be on the show. We'll ask you how you're dealing with this season. Um, we'd love to, to, to hear what some of, uh, some of your coping strategies have been. Um, but I think we should, we should try and figure out a way to do this. Yeah, I'm all for that. I'm, first of all, I'm always interested in meeting more Mets fans in L.A. Yes. Um, we've been lucky, thanks to the meetups that happened down in Santa Monica over at West 4th and Jane. Sorry to give a commercial plug. But, you know, I've been lucky to meet a couple of dozen other Mets fans. Yeah, I'm going to link to in the show notes, there's actually a thread in the meetup group uh, for people talking about trying to, to get together to go to one or more of these games. Um, so check it out there and, like, let's see if we can put something together because, you know... Suffering is better when you suffer together. Right? Don't suffer alone. Mets fans in LA, <laughs> Mets fans everywhere. If you're having a hard time, find somebody who feels like you do and hold on to them. <laughs> so uh, that's probably as good a place as any to uh, I think to so. wrap up. Yeah, let's, um, uh, you know, maybe let's close up with a happy Mets memory. A happy Mets memory. Actually, um, I, was, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, you follow the Twitter account Mets Rewind? Yes. Um, Mets Rewind had a mention of uh, this past week was the anniversary, I want to say in 1981 or 1982, of the Mets acquiring Claudel Washington. I was too young to really be aware of that at the time. One of my earliest Mets memories was being at Shea Stadium when that trade was announced in the middle of the game. And I remember seeing, like, on the big scoreboard, saying that, that you know, the Mets had made this trade. And just being stunned that that could happen in the middle of a game. Right. And I think I've never actually let go of that. Like, even though we live in a, in a, in a post-Wilmer Flores era when, like, if trades are happening, the people on the field don't know and they don't talk about it. But just the idea that that could happen in the middle of a game and that, that news could break, like, on the scoreboard like that, like, is this feeling of possibility. Of yeah. Like, anything can happen at any time. Well, it's like, you think that the game exists with a dome over it, yeah. and nothing can touch it, and you realize the rest of the world is going on around yeah. it. Sometimes that means players get moved. Yeah. I was reading, um, there's a biography of Leo DeRocher that came out recently. Huh. Um, and, you know, they get into a lot of the mechanics of, like, how he moved from team to team. Mm -hmm. And you realize, like, how much actual kind of, um, Sort of moving of the chess pieces takes place often during games. Yeah. Um, for my Happy Mets memory, I'm going to look back on the annual Ray Ordonez home run. <laughs> it has been a long time since we've seen the annual Ray Ordonez wherever you are. I hope you're still, you know, making the plays. I hope you're taking care of your family now. Um, but the annual Ray Ordonez home run was one of the highlights of my year. Now, the low light of my year was seeing Ray Ordonez take big uppercut swings after that home run. Yeah. But let's just enjoy that ball. Accentuate the positive. Sailing over the fence. Yeah. And then his teammates pretending they hadn't noticed. You know, there is an all-purpose joke that uh, we used to tell a lot uh, and plugged Ray Ordonez into the, uh, into the joke. And it goes a little, it goes something like, uh, hey, you know who was up after Ray Ordonez? The other team. <laughs> You can customize yeah. You can customize that with whoever you want. Ah, uh, it's always a, hey, stick with the classics. Stick though. with the classics. You know? Great. So, uh, all right, so let's call it a, call it a show. Um, if you are enjoying Flushing Transit Authority, even if you're not enjoying Flushing Transit Authority, 
Give us a like, a rate, a review on any one of your various podcast listening machines or outlets, uh, and we'd really appreciate it. We really would. You know, as I like to say, if you love someone, rate their podcast. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll talk again in a couple of weeks, Well, All right. Thanks, Jake.